Welcome to You Saved My Life, a podcast where we're going to be flipping through the annals of queer theory and traveling through time and space to collect anecdotes, relics, and visions that shape our queer present and break ground on our queer futures. My name is Phoenix Danger, and I am a professor of absolutely nothing. And that is because you don't need to have any kind of degree to engage with queer theory, and that is why I'm here. Today, we're going to be talking about Eve Sedgwick, who is widely considered to be one of the many gendered mothers of queer theory. Her first book, Between Men, was published in 1985, and her last in 2003, which was named Touching Feeling. Just from like the timeline of her body of work, you can see that she's been an academic witness all the way from the Reaganite AIDS epidemic to the... Yeah, to the liberalization of queer movement. In this episode, we're focusing on Tendencies, um, which was published in 1993, about just as Bill Clinton was about to be sworn into office. The book consists of personal essays, um, as well as academic essays that span, like, span the ideas of performance art, kink, AIDS, and literature, um, among other things. There's a lot of first-person singular writing in this book, um, which she describes as heuristic. Um, and since this is not some asshole academic, you have to understand everything I'm saying podcast, uh, heuristic sort of refers to the idea of making discoveries for oneself, which is kind of what I'm doing right now and hopefully what you're going to be doing uh, for the duration of this podcast. Another idea that she focuses on a lot is the idea of epistemology, which is a philosophical term. Um, it refers to the development and theory of knowledge through methods, validity, and scope. Basically, it's the idea that you're taking lived experiences, um, feelings, ideas, and you are sort of like building you're building a base to make these, to have these experiences sort of perceived or solidified as factual and as objective and as theory, um, which is really where queer theory is at this point. Queer theory also identified as queer studies, gay and lesbian studies, love it. Um, so Sedgwick opens in the midst of the 1992 gay pride parade in New York where she's witnessing a lot of like gender fucking and gender nonconformity. Uh, she sort of lists all of these out in the beginning, in the first paragraph of the book, she sees a leather, a leather muscle man wearing a shirt that says, keep your laws off my uterus, which is either I think an indication of trans masculinity or an indication of solidarity, both like, you know, that's cool. There were also a lot of lesbians in shirts that read faggot. Um, and something that she makes a point of is that the feeling of being here is queer. I really appreciate that she values affect. Um, she values emotion. She values not only the feeling of individuals, but the feeling of the moment and of the movement because like despite being in a place in history where you know bodies are sort of piling up she 
takes the time to express that and then also takes the time to revel in sort of like the infinite universe of queerness. So in Sedgwick's eyes, she is waging a war against Western civilization. That is a direct quote. And the way that she's doing this is by refusing the heterosexual homosexual binary while also giving us um an analysis about how that binary shapes a lot of other binaries um in our society um and in her introduction to tendencies she does um she does take the time to list quite a few security versus disclosure knowledge versus ignorance private versus public, which of course we know is compromised by um, gay cruising and public sex, bathhouses, etc. Masculine versus feminine, majority versus minority, innocence versus initiation, wholeness versus decadence, natural versus artificial, which we'll actually get to later with the like tired ass dusty nature versus nurture gay thing, Uh, new versus old, urbane versus provincial, Domestic versus foreign, health versus illness, which of course is particularly poignant um, to the experience of AIDS um, as like people's health often fluctuated. A recovery could be miraculous, but crash extremely quickly. Um, Same versus different, active versus passive, in versus out, cognition versus paranoia, um, which has a really heavy ableism mental health aspect to it. And of course, um, queer communities are disproportionately affected by mental illness. Um, We have art versus kitsch, obviously often the same thing. Um, Utopia versus apocalypse, uh, which I think we're kind of experiencing um, in this queer moment. Um, Sincerity versus sentimentality. Uh, and voluntary versus addiction. Sedgwick addresses what she calls the common sense idea um, of gender models that are obviously contradictory to people who are of queer experience. At the time, there was just not good language to talk about it, and also, like, a lot of the language was coming from straight people. She focuses on the inversion trope, which is, like, if you're a gay man, you're a woman trapped in a man's body. Um, That gay people are situated between genders, um, aka, if you're really a man, you desire women. This is kind of going beyond the point of just sexuality it's naming sexuality as a gender role and of course there are dire consequences to breaking a gender role she talks about the implications of one's sexual identity it's actually a little bit absurd um how much is assumed when you state your sexual identity um and she lists them out in tendencies so she says Yet, exerting any pressure at all on sexual identity, you see that its elements include your biological sex, male or female, your self-perceived gender assignment, male or female, supposed to be the same as your biological sex, the preponderance of your traits, personality, and appearance, masculine or feminine, supposed to correspond to your sex and gender, the biological sex of your preferred partner. 
the gender assignment of your preferred partner, supposed to be the same as biological sex, the masculinity or femininity of your preferred partner, supposed to be the opposite of your own, your self-perception as gay or straight, supposed to correspond to if your preferred partner is your sex or the opposite, your preferred partner's self-perception as gay or straight, the same as yours, your procreative choice, yes if straight, no if gay, your preferred sexual acts, insertive if you are male or masculine, receptive if you are female or feminine, your most eroticized sexual organs, uh, your sexual fantasies, highly congruent with your sexual practice, but stronger in intensity, your main locus of emotional bonds, supposed to reside in your preferred sexual partner, your enjoyment of power in sexual relations, low if you're female or feminine, high if male or masculine, the people from whom you learn about your own gender and sex, supposed to correspond to yourself in both respects, and your community of cultural and political identification, supposed to correspond to your own identity. Obviously, uh, that's all bullshit. Um, you know, I can just go through a couple of these and, you know, maybe you'll identify with your own deviance. I mean, okay, there's no such thing as biological sex. Biological sex is... Um, a scientific construction, you know, scientists went out with the idea of finding two sexes. And so they did total erasure of intersex people, really fucked up ideas about transness or like that one's gender is predetermined by their chromosomal sex. Um, we also have the idea of procreative choice, um, supposed to be yes, if straight, no, if gay. Yeah. Queer people can have procreative sex. This idea is like supported strongly by the idea of like transness, queerness, bisexuality, queer, like queer people have procreative sex all the time or not fucking whatever you want. And like trans women can knock up trans men like all kinds of shit is happening people are having like sex with people of various genders people identify as various genders and just like can't be contained to this list that Sedgwick trots out to really evidence the violently policed ideas of what gender and sexuality and sexual acts and power and fantasy are supposed to be in addition to all of this, another implication is that there's a quality of stagnation uh, to one's gender and sexuality, which are supposedly inextricable from one another. They do not change over time. They're not allowed to change over time because society would crumble if they did, um, as society is very much crumbling now. Uh, so what Sedgwick appreciates about queer is something that I very much appreciate about queer, in that it refers to a number of possibilities, contradictions, gaps, overlaps. Um, it can't be signified as a monolith, and it's different for every person, which is very contradictory to the list that Sedgwick puts forth. Sedgwick opens up another chapter with an idea that I find extremely devastating. It resonates in our current time. Um, it resonates in the biographies and autobiographies of many people I love and many people who I've never met. She says, a motive I think everyone who does gay and lesbian studies is haunted by the suicides of adolescents. 
To us, the hard statistics come easily. That queer teenagers are two to three times likelier to attempt suicide and to accomplish it than others. That up to 30% of teen suicides are likely to be gay or lesbian. That a third of lesbian and gay teenagers say that they have attempted suicide. That minority, here meaning people of color, queer adolescents are at even more extreme risk. She lists the violence that young queer people face at this time. Uh, Denial of information about sex, which actually does extend to straight people, um, straight straight adolescents. Um, Systemic separation of children from queer adults, which destroys the notion, like the separation destroys the notion that there is such a thing as having a queer adulthood, as having a queer future, as being able to grow up as queer, have mentors, have models. Because the implication of that is that if you do not have queer adults, you're either straight or you're dead. In addition to that, parents, teachers, clergy, and mental health professionals colluding to invalidate gender dissonant tastes, um, being kicked out of homes, and the adult denial of truth themselves um, aka a willful ignorance of, um, I mean, I think one, the fact that children do have a sexuality that do have sexualities, um, and two, that some of them are queer. Cedric makes it really clear, uh, what's going on here that these queer, like these young queer people before they're able to grow into adult queerness, they're punished with death. Death, both extrajudicial and judicial, obviously supported um, by the state. It makes sense that a lot of examples of this violence, uh, both then and now, look extremely similar. Um, And part of that is because, I mean, Reagan really ushered in um, an age of neoliberalism. Yeah, so neoliberalism, still affecting us today, has only... Um, grown, multiplied, uh, turned into a horrible monster of uh, capitalism. And these examples of violence include murdered trans women, mass incarceration, queer bashing, the raiding of gay bars, uh, and the closing of public space, where, um, of course, a lot of homeless queer adolescents uh, were crashing, where uh, gay men were cruising for sex. Where, where queers were able to exist in communities in public. Yeah, I don't know. This really, really cuts into the idea of having a queer adolescence, um, growing into a queer adulthood, being threatened, um, the idea that like one is not meant to survive. Though I will note that if you are listening to this right now, you have so far. Cedric makes a great point, which is that everyone who survived has stories about how it was done. The sharing of these stories is really a, is like a huge, huge, huge part, um, of what builds queer community. Um, you know, these are stories that we tell often when we're getting to know each other, when we're peeling back layers of like layers of like truth and pain to reveal, um, intimacy, that often on a first date, one will be asked, so how did you come out? Like a lot of those stories are really traumatizing and like not super hot first date material, but that's just how we do it. 
Um, it, I think it comes from, you know, a desperation uh, to be seen, um, a desperation to tell one's story, um, you know, telling your own story of survival and trauma and sharing that with others and like receiving those stories, you know, I really think lifts the burden of carrying one's pain around. It reminds me of, um, sort of a support structure that, um, one of my dear friends and my partner thoughtfully threw together, um, in sort of a wave of crisis that we were having, um, in our community at the end of last year, um, at the end of 2016, there were a lot of breaks in mental health, including mine. There's no question that I could have easily survived, um, without the support, you know, like because of this, a bunch of my closest friends were rounded up into a text message thread that addressed my every crisis and need that gave me someone to take me to therapy that gave me people to pick up my meds that gave me people to sit with quietly as I tried to fend off feelings of self-harm. And that really reminds me of, um, this passage in, uh, the closing essay of tendencies, uh, which is called white glasses. Cedric is talking about her dear friend, Michael Lynch, who is in, at this time in the hospital uh, with multiple complications connected to connected to AIDS. And as Sedgwick says, uh, Michael has decided it was time to die. She goes on. Michael was supported by amazing resources of affection, information, and the most mundane personal care from the communities he himself had created, co-created, and fostered. Old and new friends organized a care team for Michael on what I think is an unprecedented model and scale. 24-hour-a-day attendance by a weekly rotation of 30 or so friends organized through Sunday meetings who kept scrupulous track through a massive logbook and who respected Michael's empowerment to think about death on his own terms. I think that when I was going through this crisis... I felt a lot of resistance to thinking, well, at first, felt a lot of internalized resistance to thinking about death on my own terms, not actively thinking about bringing about my own death, but the extreme proximity um, of death to our communities, because what Cedric goes into is that, okay, like you're a queer adolescent, with luck, you survive. But she said, she asks, what do we survive into? Threat, stigma, violence, fear, loss, survivor's guilt. She says, I think many adults are trying in our work to keep faith with vividly remembered promises made to ourselves in childhood. Promises to make invisible possibilities and desires visible, to make tacit things explicit, to smuggle queer representation in where it must be smuggled, and with the relative freedom of adulthood to challenge queer eradicating impulses. I don't know, that resonates a lot with my own queer childhood as like a gender non-conforming child who like didn't really know what gender non-conforming children were. I think pretty much neither did anyone else. Eve Sedgwick obviously knew, but she wasn't there. I don't know, I that like as a queer child and as a queer adolescent, 
just grew up fucking hating it. And when I say hating it, I hated it because figures of authority hated it. And yeah, I don't know. That cuts deep. Um, And so, I mean, I think that I too also, you know, for this reason, have this need to be almost compulsively honest about my experiences as as a young queer person and now I guess as a queer adult um I made it never stop talking about a range of desires uh even ones that may be deemed as shameful um to never stop thinking about the possibilities of what utopian queerness can look like uh in the face of I mean, in the face of fascist destruction, to pull out queer coding uh, in media, movies, literature, and to make it clear to young queer people that even though they are surviving into threat, that it can be done. So in 1986, uh, Eve Sedgwick teaches her first gay and lesbian studies class uh, in the English department at Amherst College. I don't know if that seems like a weird placement for queer studies, um, but, you know, these departments didn't exist then, uh, and they largely don't exist now. Actually, looking this up, I, um, I found that the number of universities that, uh, that offer a queer studies undergrad uh, were described as there being five or more. I don't know what to say about that. As a college student, um, I was like very minimally exposed to queer theory, you know, maybe took like a class and a half, did one sort of queer reading in a sociology class. Like despite that minimal exposure, you know, there is sort of like this queer desperation to cling on to what represents you. You know, that is to say that it's incredible that even though there's like such little exposure to queerness um, or like institutional support for queer academics and undergrad programs that like somehow there are a lot of people doing queer work in graduate programs. Um, so I don't know. We must be on to something. Anyway, it's 1986. Professor Eve Sedgwick is teaching her first lesbian and gay studies class. She experienced something that I experienced with like my one and only like transgender studies class, uh, which is that, you know, when she when she designed this course, she had expected maybe like five or six students who were like out as queer uh, on the campus. And what she ended up with was 65 students. Sounds great. Um, but of course, the majority of them were straight. This experience speaks to other ways that young queer lives are threatened because when you are one of the five to six queer students in a class of 65, um, you very quickly learn to abandon the expectation that the course material will actually address the pain of your reality or validate your experiences. Sedgwick says... The sense of entitlement as straight-defined students was so strong that they considered it an inalienable right to have all kinds of different lives, histories, cultures unfolded as if anthropologically in formats 
specifically designed for maximum legibility to themselves. It was a field where the actual survival of other people in that, that very classroom could at the very moment, at that very moment, be at stake. Yeah, I guess that's probably one of the reasons why um, I abandoned the academy. Uh, <laughs> you know, as I said, I'm a professor of nothing, but about a year ago, uh, if you asked me where I was going, um, I would say that I was going into a PhD program. That's not true anymore, and um, that's not true particularly because a queer, butch, aggressively intelligent professor told me, which is that if you stay in the academy, you will become an assimilationist. And I think that the way that she said it was that she had mostly come to terms with it, but that it was still occasionally haunting. And so, I don't know, that assimilation speaks to a lot of things. Uh, in particular, that higher education, I guess any education, is an institutional structure that is made purposely difficult to navigate for queer students, poor students, students of color, um, students of different abilities, students with um, who struggle with mental health. Sedgwick actually addresses this um, in a section that she calls thought as privilege. So she addresses privilege um, coming from both the right and the left. Conservative elitism, the way that she describes it, rejects all facets of creative thinking. Uh, For example, reflection, speculation, um, wordplay, close reading, free association, wit, all of which are very prominent in her writing. I don't know, Eve's got a good sense of humor. Conservative elites believe, believed and believe, uh, that they are the sole inheritors, defenders, dispensers of um, the heritage of thought and of ideas, sort of like the beginning and the end of where all thought resides. Horrifyingly enough, uh, at that time and at this time, uh, that elitism was actually fueled by um, heavily populist rhetoric, which essentially proposed the idea that this wonderful uh, structure of gatekeeping could be open to anyone, as long as they could work for it. Liberal elitism, a little bit different. No, I mean, liberal elitism for Sedgwick is definitely different in that there is like a creative spirit behind it, um, which I definitely think is true. You know, the liberal elites don't necessarily view themselves uh, as guardians of knowledge. I think that what Sedgwick is getting at is that they want to define themselves as people who push the edges of knowledge and theory outwards to include more and more groups particularly um, oppressed groups. You know, this is a time where um, queer studies comes at a time uh, where it's on the heels of um, the uh, epistemologically (laughs) successful uh, women's studies, black history, um, like studies of the Puerto Rican diaspora, um, and just like, yeah, just like a lot of identity-based study. And she acknowledges that there are, a lot of this is problematic. 
not everyone, she realizes, has the time and permission to indulge in queer theory, though I will say that even if you don't have the time to indulge in queer theory, if you are a queer person, you are engaging in creating queer thought. You know, you don't need a fucking PhD for that. Sedgwick doesn't mention this, but, you know, this takes me back to what my professor was saying um, in that once you are acknowledged by the academy, you become a part of the academy. And so you, like, in engaging in queer studies at especially higher levels of um, postgraduate education, um, but also undergraduate education, you're asking permission to be acknowledged even though it's already obvious that you exist. I am going to close with a poem uh, that Sedgwick cites um, in the first couple of pages. I don't really fancy myself as someone who's super good at, uh, at reading poetry out loud. And before I came in here today, I was just like looking for videos of people, um, of people reciting this poem. And I don't know. I feel like there's like some sort of queer analysis to be had here. Basically, where I ended up was on um, on a video streaming site where naked bears, the gay type, obviously the other type is always naked, um, but where naked bears were lounging and reading Emily Dickinson, which I really enjoyed. So imagine me as a naked lounging bear, um, my peen is out, I have a beard, my nipples are pierced, I don't know, um, whatever you want, imagine yourself. So here it is. An outgrown anguish remembered as the mile, our panting ankle barely passed when night devoured the road. But we stood whispering in the house, and all we said was saved. Thanks for listening. You Saved My Life was recorded and produced in the Mask FM studio. If you'd like to support our network, visit www.patreon.com slash maskfm.